Psalm chapter 5, a prayer for guidance to the chief musician with flutes, a psalm of David. This is one of the psalms last week that we were reading with the kids, and I had Lainey do a little flute while I was reading it. Um, Not going to ask anyone here to do that. Don't worry. Um, You are welcome. A psalm of David. You'll recognize uh, these verses from the, the song we just sang. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Uh, David, Aaron, quit texting me during service. That was a horrible song. Don't ever do it again. That is rude. Okay. David is asking an audience of the Lord. And we're going to see many times capital L-O-R-D or Yahweh. Uh, The simple Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H, is how we would um, put it. This name for God, uh, crying out, Lord, hear us. Consider my sighing and my groaning. Uh, Sometimes our prayers and our cries just consist of that. Um, uh, I felt a lot of times in the mornings lately, uh, I'm just, I just am reading the the one-year Bible and, and just, just know that I have heart cries for the Lord, but I'm just unable to verbalize them. And so I'm just kind of just sitting in the presence of the Lord and just meditating on what I've read. I don't know if anyone else finds themselves there sometimes. Um, Romans 8 speaks of, you know, uh, those times where we're just in a, in a place where we just can only groan to the Lord uh, from our spirits. But the Holy Spirit uh, is able to do that praying for us. Uh, R.A. Torrey, uh, we went through probably four or five years ago, the book How to Pray at the Pulse on Thursday nights, written by R.A. Torrey, who was a, um, an evangelist with D.L. Moody, and, and uh, he wrote in his book How to Pray that very much of so-called prayer, both public and private, is not unto God. In order that a prayer should be really unto God, there must be a definite and conscious approach to God when we pray, we must have a definite and vivid realization that God is bending over us and listening as we pray. I think that'll help our prayer lives and that'll help our crying out to him that he's, he is listening. See that all throughout the Psalms. Verse 2, give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you will I pray. Asking our King to listen attentively, and to be alert. Now, I really don't know that much about kings and, you know, except for what I've seen on Robin Hood or whatever, you know, or things like that, where they come into the court and you got the peasants that are like asking something of the king and they're like, maybe I'll grant that request, but get out of here, you know, or something. I know that's probably not the, (laughs) that's not every king or maybe it is. What do you think, Jeremy? You went to OSU, what do you think? Okay, Um, that's something something along those lines, but what's that? (laughs) Oh, okay, that's better. The rare thing that the king is alert to the cry of his people, you know, that he would listen to our pleading, that he would be attentive to our crying. For to you, like R.A. Torrey said, just that really unto God praying, that definite and conscious approach to God. You are my king. Not only are you my king, but elevate that like a couple thousand degrees. And then, and my God, hear my cry. 
For to you, my King, my God, will I pray my voice, verse 3, you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning, I will direct it to you and I will look up. Morning prayers, morning cries. The NIV adds cries for help in there. Kind of specifies specifies it a little bit. Uh, of those meditations, of those looking up. Psalm 55, 17 you know, speaks of an evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Um, Charles Spurgeon has a devotional called uh, Morning and Evenings, you know. Uh, Daniel's prayer life was three times a day and it was so consistent that the governors and satraps were able to catch him in his consistent prayer life and throw him into prison. And just wonder if that's something that marks us and marks me. I go through seasons, you know, and but I want it to just be more and more consistent. And there's just something about those first fruits of our day. Um, uh, in the morning, ESV says, in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. Something about worship, something about prayer. It's, it's a sacrifice to the Lord. It's a sacrifice to set that alarm clock and to get up early. Uh, don't you think? <laughs> and, uh, it's a sacrifice maybe to stay up late and to pray. The New American Standard, in the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. I liked each one of these translations. NIV, in the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. New Revised Version, in the morning, I plead my case to you and watch. So we have this... Um, Lifting up my voice to you, preparing a sacrifice to you, ordering my prayers to you, maybe having a journal. Uh, those are wonderful prayer aids. Anyone here a journaler in their in their prayer life? A couple people? Awesome. Man, it is, if you have trouble, you know, formulating those words, just spend the time writing them out. And then you have something to go back to and remember the faithfulness of God. Um, but ordering your prayer, perhaps through a journal uh, or a notepad on your phone or something, Laying our requests before the Lord and waiting expectantly, pleading our case. Hudson Taylor um, was an American missionary that went to China and started the China Inland Mission. And he uh, basically, you know, went over there and just adopted the Chinese customs in order to, con you know, contextualize the gospel and, and reach the people there. But um, like many of us, had, uh, had trouble finding time to spend with the Lord. And so he began to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning. And he used those quiet hours when everyone else was sleeping to continue and to commune with the Lord, uh, which is the example that the Lord set for us. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. So in the morning, before daylight, before the kids woke up, before the texts start coming in, um, just spending that time with the Lord. And I remember in the springtime, we'd just consciously, kind of as a body, were moved towards uh, positioning ourselves for a great awakening. And uh, guys in my core group and many of you would wake up early and just found those times to be so rich with the Lord. And, and then life distracts. And perhaps it's a good time to refocus and revisit that. Charles Spurgeon says, this is the fittest time for interaction with God. An hour in the morning is worth two in the evening. While the dew is on the grass, let grace drop upon 
the soul. And so the psalmist says, and then I will look up. I will look up. Spurgeon again said the idea behind this looking up is not to aim, but to order and arrange. It is the word that is used for the laying in order of the wood and the pieces of the victim upon an altar of sacrifice. And it's used also for the putting of the showbread upon the table. It means just this. I will arrange my prayer before thee. I will lay it out upon the altar in the morning, just as the priest lays out the morning sacrifice. And so I like that ESV version of the psalm there. I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Uh, F.B. Meyer writes, it is manifestly a mistake to pray haphazard. There's too much random praying with us all. We do not return again and again to the same petition, pressing it home with all humility and reverence and arguing the case as Abraham did for the cities of the plain. And if you're reading that, uh, eat the Bible with us this year, you remember reading that of, um, I read it to the kids and just like, he was just pleading with the Lord. If there were even 10 righteous, you know, not 50, you know, okay, none of that, none of them are there, not, not 30, not 20, 10, 10 righteous Lord. Uh, and um, just begging the Lord. And we don't see that in our lives so often. I forget that as well. Um, and then we have this transition of thought in our psalm for the night. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. So there's this crying out to the Lord. There's this purposeful setting aside time to petition and to cry out to him and to wait and sacrifice in the morning time. And then there's this transitional thought to the righteousness of God. It just speaks of the innocence of God and the rightness of God. And in that, in, this, in these next few verses, there's a contrast with the unrighteousness of men or the wickedness of men. And so you might note these fallen conditions that are mentioned here. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. Um, verse 5 says, the boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord's, uh, Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So seven different just uh, evidences of sin there, evidences of the fall. Um, we see the NIV says there, as God does not take pleasure in wickedness and evil shall not dwell with him. Maybe you're an NIV person. Evil people are not welcome. Evil people are not welcome. James Montgomery Boyce, great preacher, wrote, As David drew closer to God, he became more aware of God's holiness and more aware of, God, of man's sinfulness. It's a good way to measure how well you are praying and whether as you pay, pray you're drawing close to God or merely mouthing words. If you're drawing close to God, you will become increasingly sensitive to sin, which is inevitable since the God you are approaching is a holy God. And so these Wicked men, the Lord doesn't take pleasure in them. The evil can't dwell with them. They're, they're not welcome in the presence of the Lord. A boastful man can't be standing in the sight of the Lord. That is an arrogant, prideful man that actually mocks others. 
you shall uh, uh, destroy those who speak falsehood. Now notice in verse 5, there's the, there's the workers of iniquity that the Lord hates. And then um, he destroys, verse 6, those who speak falsehood. What's interesting, iniquity and falsehood, both in their Hebrew definition, have a source of idolatry and idol worship. And really, that's what our sin is. It's, it's a worship disorder. It's a worship issue. It's de-godding God, saying no to God and saying yes to created uh, things. And, uh, and so there's this uh, hating of the workers of iniquity and a destruction for those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty, uh, that's guilty of shedding blood, and then the deceitful man, the one who is a trickster, a fraud, a one who's always disillusioning people. Uh, Psalm 53, uh, 55, 23, someone read this verse, Psalm 55, 23. So this bloodthirsty and deceitful goes hand in hand in our Psalm 5 and Psalm 55, um, recently reading of our one year Bible plan. Keep, that's kind of like the little commercial breaks every time. Like, don't forget to be reading your Bible plan. Um, we read this week of Jacob, didn't we? Kind of more recently, we've been reading of Jacob and how, uh, Genesis 25, 26 speaks of the birth of these twins. And I just caught it again today. How, um, when, uh, Rachel, Isaac and Rachel or Rebecca, help me out here. Just blanking. Okay. Rebecca, thank you. Um, they, she had these twins, and uh, they were fighting inside the womb. Does that happen? Did you? That happen? They were, like, fighting? Really? Okay. Mm. Oh, really? <laughs> so there was a Hibs issue inside of Rebecca's womb there. Um, they were fighting in there, and she's like, something can't be right. And then the Lord speaks to her about these warring nations and, and, uh, and the, the switch up and the birthright and all that, all those things. But, uh, when, uh, Jake, let's see here. I just read it. In fact, it says here 25, 26 afterward. Uh, so Jacob comes in first, right? Hand, hand out scarlet thread on there, brings it back in. Then Esau comes out. Uh, and then uh, this hand comes out, takes hold of Esau's heel. So they named Jake, uh, named this uh, second one Jacob, uh, which means heel catcher. Okay, but not only does it mean heel catcher, it doesn't really mean anything to us, right? Uh, but that means a deceitful one or a supplanter, one who takes the heel. So kind of conniving all the time. And we see that in Jacob's life so far in our reading. We've seen that he takes Esau's birthright, really traded it, but wasn't the most kind brotherly thing to do. Uh, perhaps had a little bit of an idea as he was cooking the lentil stew there as brother was out hunting that might be able to, to use this in my trickery here. Uh, he steals Esau's blessing um, and then he cunningly takes Laban's flock. And so just always had this bit of a trickster uh, about him. And, uh, you know, just seeing that that, that deceitful element, um, kind of that bent towards sin in Jacob's life. And so we have these fallen conditions that, uh, that we read about there. Boastful, let's see, go, go back a little bit. Verse 4, wickedness, evil, boastful, workers of iniquity, falsehood, bloodthirsty, deceitful, all of these things. And then verse 7, we have a contrast with a, a righteous man. But as for me, I will come into your house 
in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. And so we have this redemptive quality of this psalm. We've got fallen condition focus in the wickedness of men. And then we have the redemptive quality through the mercy of the Lord. And not just mercy. Do you like the description of the mercy here? Anyone? Multitude of mercy. A multitude or plentiful favor. As for me, I'm not going to be like the evil, the wicked, the boastful, the bloodthirsty, the deceitful man. As for me, Lord, I come into your house, not because I have a whole lot to offer and I'm some righteous man, but I'm able to come in because of your mercy. I almost did that song, but I don't want to overdo it. Uh, that overwhelmed song, you know, Lord, I run into your arms unashamed because of mercy. I'm overwhelmed. You know, that one. Um, I'm unashamed because of mercy. I can run into your arms because of mercy. I come into your house, verse 7, in the multitude of your mercy, waves of plentiful, plentiful favor. And in there, in the house of the Lord, in the midst of mercy, then we have that it's in fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. Worship shouldn't only be based on feelings. There's many wonderful feelings that, that uh, lead us towards worship. But the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, a reverence for his righteousness is an incredible way to enter into the holy temple. Uh, Psalm 128.1. So we're going to have a couple of the verses that inspired some songs tonight. Someone read Psalm 128.1. Proverbs 8.13. Easy. Take it. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And so as he goes into the house of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord, in the hatred of evil, I come into your holy, pure, set-apart temple. Proverbs 16.6. If you go... If you do a proverb a day and you just kind of, you know, try to go through the proverbs once a month, you come across this one once a month. And it, I just have it highlighted and double underlined because it ministers to me every time I read it. Someone read Proverbs 16.6. So we have that mercy in the multitude of your mercies. We, we, uh, we come into the Lord's house in mercy and truth. Atonement, payment is provided for iniquity. It washes, it forgives our sins by mercy, by truth. And then you have the all right, now I've been forgiven. Now I'm just going to keep sinning. No, there's a fear of the Lord. Once we've been forgiven, there's this reverence. There's this awe of the Lord. And that moves us towards departing from evil. So we have verse 7 in our psalm tonight. We have the multitude of mercies washing over us. Uh, we can come into the house of the Lord because of the mercy of the cross, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, cleansing us from wickedness, washing away our sins making us as white as snow. And then as we worship in the, in the uh, holy temple, there's this fear that just causes us to shun evil, to hate evil, to depart from evil. Uh, verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. So again, to the wickedness of men, 
kind of this depravity of man. Um, Paul will quote from Psalm 5, from Psalm 14, from Psalm 53. He'll kind of use this language in Romans 3, 9 through 20 uh, when, when uh, giving a, an accusation against men and how they try to be justified by works. And when we see that it's just not possible. The, these are our works here. Our works are um, deceit in our mouths, inward destruction, throats that are open tombs, flattery with our tongues. Verse 10, pronounce them guilty, O God. And that uh, Romans 3 does just that. It pronounces guilty. I have it down here. Let's go ahead and read it. Romans 3, 9 through 20. Who wants a big chunk to read tonight? So just this depravity of man, no faithfulness in mouth, inward part is destruction, throat is an open tomb, flatter with their tongue. And then verse 10 in our psalm says, pronounce them guilty, O God. And that's what the author of Romans says when he uses those, those descriptions of the wicked. He says, um, those, uh, every mouth, because of their wickedness underneath the law, would be stopped and all the world would become guilty before God. As we try to defend ourselves, well, I've done this and this, and I was in Boy Scouts and this and that. Uh, and then we see our sin before our holy God and before the righteousness that the law sets forth. We've fallen, we've sinned, we've fallen short of the glory of God. Our mouth stops, and every man is found guilty before the Lord. Oh God, let them fall by their own counsels. These are the wicked men. Cast them out for the multitude of their transgressions. For they have rebelled against you. So this fallen condition here, multitude of transgressions, rebelling against you. And all that is, is, results in being cast out of the presence of the Lord. You see that in Matthew chapter 25. You see that in the Revelation uh, passages in Revelation chapter 20. A casting out of the presence of the Lord because of our rebellion against him in our sin. Uh, he prays that his these, these enemies, the wicked men, would fall by their own counsels. Um, as we remember, a couple weeks ago, we did the psalm where uh, that, that David wrote when Absalom, his son, had led a rebellion against him. And do you remember we kind of read that historical portion out of Second Samuel? And David heard that his father-in-law Ahithophel, Bathsheba's dad, had not sided with David, but had sided with Absalom and stayed behind. Uh, and Ahithophel was one of David's wise counselors. So that could have been detrimental uh, to David. But 2 Samuel 5.31 says that someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And is that what happened? It's exactly what happened. In 2 Samuel 17, two chapters later, verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel says the advice of Hushai, this is David's spy in there, the advice of Hushai, the archite, is better than the advice of Ahithophel, for the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. And then in verse 23 of 2 Samuel 17, now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled his donkey, arose, and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in his father's tomb. And so uh, Absalom's wise counselor, the Lord turned that wise counsel into foolishness, and it uh, led to um, uh, the 
destruction there of Absalom's army. It was the same with Haman, who tried to you know annihilate the Jews in the book of Esther. He made this giant gallows to kill the Jews, and he ended up hanging on the on his own gallows that he made. And so we pray tonight that the Lord would do what Job says in five twelve through four frustrate the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the counsels of the cunning come quickly upon them. They meet with the darkness in the daytime and grope at noontime as in the night. And Paul would quote that in 1 Corinthians 3.19, the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God for it's written. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. Our psalm tonight, but Verse 11, let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. What's the opposite of uh, just the, these uh, guilt transgressors rebelling against God? The opposite and the contrast is trusting in the Lord. Trusting in the Lord. When you don't trust in the Lord, you're going to be the, the wicked, deceitful, bloodthirsty man. You're going to be the, the Romans 3 sinner. If you're not trusting in the Lord, but you can rejoice if you put your trust in the Lord. You can, in fact, it's, it's this uh, invitation, let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. So, man, you just see the destruction of the wicked person being brought to shame and then you see that those who trust in the Lord, shouting for joy, having a shield about them because the Lord defends them. Um, if you love the name of the Lord, there is joy there. Uh, someone read Judges 5.31. <clears throat> uh, just this loving of the Lord. My kids uh, don't call Christians Christians. They're, they always wonder, does that person love Jesus? That's like the question all the time. Does that person love Jesus? Does that person love Jesus? They don't love Jesus, you know. Love Jesus. That's what it's about. Trusting in the Lord is loving the Lord. It's loving his name. And we have permission to have joy because of the love of the Lord. The love that he's placed in us for him and the love that he has shown towards us. We have permission for joy. And one day we are going to shout out with joyful triumph. Uh, in Revelation 19, 1 through 7, the marriage supper of the Lamb, we are going to have a great time worshiping the Lord. Paul, will you read this section? It's time of joy and celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we'll be shouting out, Alleluia, praise God. Verse 12, our final verse tonight, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. Our last verse said that... Um, he defends us. We have joy because he defends us. And in verse 12, we see he defends us being surrounded with this shield. All throughout the Psalms, we read that um, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. It's a great blessing of the Lord, the favor of the Lord. A shield is essentially uh, armor over armor. That's what we have in the Lord. We have armor over armor. Um, Stories told of when Martin Luther was on his way to face a cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church to answer for what they said were his heretical teaching. One of the cardinal's servants taunted him, saying, Where will you find shelter if your patron, the elector of Saxony, should desert you? 
And Luther answered, under the shelter of heaven. And the Lord, we love the Lord. We have the favor of the Lord. And he is a shield around, um, surrounding the righteous. And